Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, an Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the GW Integrative Medicine Programs. Today, we're excited to talk to Kara Fitzgerald, ND, a leader in the field of functional medicine and author of several textbooks that have become Bibles for her specialty. Dr. Fitzgerald recently had a new book published for healthcare consumers, Younger You, Reverse Your Bio-Age and Live Longer Better. The book is based on her groundbreaking study on reversing epigenetic age using a diet and lifestyle intervention that was published in the journal Aging in April 2021. Dr. Fitzgerald is actively engaged in clinical research on the DNA methylome using diet and lifestyle interventions developed in her practice in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. She's a research clinician for the Institute for Therapeutic Discovery. Dr. Fitzgerald is on the faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine, an IFM certified practitioner and lectures globally on the field of functional medicine. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Kara. It's great to be with you both today. We are very excited to have you. Let's start with the basics, because I think not everyone understands exactly what we're talking about. So what is epigenetics, and then what role does aging and DNA methylation patterns play in all of that um, in terms of getting us from in utero to old age? Okay. Okay, that's a big question. I it is a big question. Say, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to just extend to you both the opportunity to interrupt me, to clarify things. I know you're, you're versed in this content and we can, you know, get into a rabbit hole, or at least I can, so I extend that <laughs> uh, as, as, as a free pass. Epigenetics is, so let me just, I want to go back a little bit and let folks know that we mapped the human genome, an extraordinary feat in the early 2000s. And I think we were really somewhat surprised to discover there were less genes than we anticipated Mm -hmm. and sort of less information. I mean, I ultimately think it will, you know, we'll have oodles of information, but the idea that we would be able to map one gene to one disease or really find simple patterns um, did not pan out, you know, with all the, with, with most things, the chronic diseases that we're dealing with in practice, certainly we were not able to find a clear genetic relationship. And so with that uh, awareness, that sort of, you know, almost fail, if you will, I think it, it, it felt by some, the, the, the field of epigenetics grew to prominence. I mean, it's been around for a very long time. Uh, one of our co-authors, Dr. Moshe Seff, uh, you know, has been working in the field since the 80s, uh, and it's been certainly the, the term was coined even much earlier than that. Uh, but it wasn't given attention until the limits of our DNA really came to the fore. So epi is above genetics, our genetic material. So this is looking, the field of epigenetics interests is is about looking at how genes are expressed. And that right now is what we believe, you know, really where the rubber meets the road. 
how genes are turned on or turned off, the various biochemical marks that influence that, uh, and the fact that how we live our lives influences these marks is where a massive amount of attention is being placed today. And it's extraordinarily exciting. Once upon a time, we thought we were at the fate of our genes okay, I'm going to die early, I'm going to have all these disease, or I'm going to live long and prosper and have no problems, it's all in my genes, I'm, I, I'm powerless to influence the course. It turns out that, that, that really the exact opposite is true. How we live our lives, and even actually we can get into a little bit of how epigenetic patterns can be inherited, but how we live our lives, what we're eating, what we're doing, what we're feeling, how we're being, will influence our genetic expression and will unequivocally influence our lifespan, our health span, our quality of life, you know, the, the, the chronic diseases we fall prey to or whether we have a resilience and do not develop them. So the what we're learning now is that we are driving the car infinitely more than we thought. And this is empowering and exciting and full of possibility. And I really want to uh, encourage people to engage in it. And that's really one of the reasons I think our study is so exciting. Uh, we look, we can now measure biological age. So chronological age is the number of years we've spent, the number of birthdays we've celebrated. We can't do anything about that, try as we, we might. Um, my sister and I have a running joke that she's 29 again every year. <laughs> You're <laughs> alone in that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A lot of us are 29 again. Um, so there's nothing we can do about our chronological age. Biological age is how fast we're physically aging. And this, again, we have a lot that we can say about, about this or do about this. And the way that we measure biological age is, again, looking at epigenetic expression, looking at gene expression, specifically one of the chief epigenetic um, marks called DNA methylation. And simply, DNA methylation is a methyl group. Just imagine a carbon and three hydrogens, you know, ubiquitous in nature, in metabolism. And when we place a lot of these, when the body places a lot of these methyl groups on, a, on the promoter region of a given gene, that gene is inhibited from expression. And conversely, when they are removed uh, or not present, that gene is able to be turned on. And, you know, just extraordinary uh, is the development of biological age clocks using DNA methylation patterns. The first one uh, launched in 2013 out of UCLA, uh, the laboratory of, of Dr. Steve Horvath, and now there are subsequent generation clocks. I mean, it's just a really exciting time that we can look at aging and, you know, it, predict it from in utero to, you know, centenarians by looking at these patterns of gene expression. And so now that we can do that, we're able to test interventions and how they can influence biological age. And, uh, you know, we're sitting right there with the first diet and lifestyle uh, program. And so I want to just hush for a minute and turn this back over to you and, and see what kind of comments you guys have or questions. So first, I have to say, I love how you presented that, that, you know, we're not um, solely defined by our genes because you're so right. So many people are like, well, I, can, I don't need to eat good because my grandparents lived till they were 100 and, and, you know, they didn't eat good. Well, it doesn't exactly work out that way. And, and 
But in reverse, and this is the part that I find the most hopeful, you know, if, if you're do have a history of disease, that doesn't mean you have to have disease, right? You can use these lifestyle tools to prevent yourself from getting that way. And to me, that's the most important thing that has come out of epigenetics. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it is a movement of empowerment, you know, and responsibility, you know, Mm. with this, with this power that we have over being in the driver's seat you know, of the quality of the life that we will have, you know, there's, there's a big responsibility in this. It's an extraordinary about face, you know, from how we thought, you know, just a matter of years ago. That's a great um, segue, I think, to the next big question. Um, Kari, your new book, Younger You, which basically explains everything you just said and, and, 10,000 times more, it feels like. Um, I, well, I, I started reading this and, you know, I'm, I'm about halfway through and I, I realized I'm a geriatrician and I don't know half of all this calculators and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God. So, you know, and if I'm in the medical field, I can only, and, and integrative medicine is what I do and I'm interested in this. I can only imagine that like a regular physicians and, 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 patients who go to kind of a common doctors are really completely clueless about the, all this. And I think the timing of this book can't be any better, but maybe you can just describe to us a little bit about the study itself that, that triggered yes. the, the, the book and um, just uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, again, I, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory. So if it's too much, just don't hesitate to interrupt me. I started to And I'm curious your thoughts on this also, Misha, but, you know, I started to think about epigenetics. I'm a functional medicine physician by training and, and, you know, therefore I'm, I've, I've got my eye towards the whole person or, you know, sort of a systems model. And I started to think about epigenetics. I I guess I would say I tussled with epigenetic papers somewhat reluctantly, (laughs) maybe in about 2013. I mean, it's complex, you know? I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon where this terrified lecturer is being whispered at somebody's whispering in his ear saying, you know, if they don't, if you don't understand it, just tell them it's epigenetics or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's, it's a complex field. And I was somewhat reluctant, but more and more papers were crossing my desk. Um, and I, and, and, and DNA methylation, you know, is a prominent, uh, epigenetic mark. And I just felt like I needed to drill down into them. And most of the papers in 2013 were on, were oncology, as you know, Mm -hmm. the tumor microenvironment very efficiently takes over our genetic expression. I feel like we should be indignant, you know, again, since we can do something about, you know, gene expression, we need to take it back from cancer and all the other chronic diseases. But my entry into this was with cancer and this understanding that that tumor microenvironment would move methylation either, you know, towards its own growth, towards its own nefarious survival. So it shuts down mm-hmm. tumor suppressor genes and it turns on oncogenes um, and, and propagates using these tools, among others. And my question, because in functional medicine, we do think about uh, methylation, methylation, nutrients involved in the methylation cycle for people new to this include folate and B12, choline from eggs, betaine from beets, uh, a handful of minerals, and um, 
uh, niacin, riboflavin, and B6 in some cases. Um, and so we tend to use these nutrients in my field quite a bit. And my question was, could we be negatively influencing gene expression in cancer? Could, could some of our interventions be problematic? And the massive decision, the sort of the revelation here in our practice was, was that we thought perhaps so in certain cases, people might be vulnerable. And therefore, we designed a food and lifestyle approach, a diet and lifestyle approach. Nowhere in the literature is there any problem with the, the program that we de developed. You know, at worst case, it's neutral. Best case, it's, you know, very protective against cancer and the myriad chronic diseases of aging. Uh, so we started this we started this in our in our clinic practice, using it in all of our clinic population for you know anything from you know working with cancer patients to autoimmunity to general inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. We thought we were influencing gene expression. We thought we were influencing DNA methylation. We put the program together with that intent in mind, but we did not know because we can't order epigenetic tests routinely. Mm -hmm. um, actually, at the time, when we started our study, it was 2017, and the test that we used was prohibitively expensive, and it was only available in the research setting. Um, we were given a grant, an, an unrestricted grant, by a professional supplement company, uh, Metagenics. I'm friends with the CEO and I was, you know, keeping him apprised of our research and what we were doing. And he was very compelled and uh, they, they extended the opportunity for us to conduct a randomized control trial using our diet and lifestyle program, uh, which just was extraordinary. And, you know, it hasn't, it, it hadn't been done and, you know, nor has it to date uh, anything similar been conducted uh, uh, yet. And the first, so we were looking at the methylome. That was one of our, our objectives to just map out, to see what's going on with regard to DNA methylation, you know, and gene expression. And the, the, the sort of the extraordinary leap was that it, we entered into the investigation in our practice with, you know, my reading on the literature in cancer. But it turns out that the chronic diseases of aging and aging itself share a lot of these uh, unfavorable epigenetic changes. I mean, that was the extraordinary sort of spine-tingling aha moment that the most important thing that we could look at was biological aging. And at that point in time, you know, the, the main clock was the, was the, multi, the Horvath multi-tissue um, 2013 clock that looks at 353 methylation sites on the methylome. And so that became our focus. If we can reverse biological age, we should be able to, by extension, influence the course of these chronic diseases. And so that became one of our primary endpoints. Uh, our population were middle-aged, so we wanted to look at an older population because that's when we see these these genetic expression changes. Um, we needed to keep it limited to men because it was a small study. Uh, 
and so and and we didn't have we we would need larger numbers to be able to control for the influence of hormonal changes that happen in women between the ages of 50 and 70 so it'd be premenopause i was about know, to make i was about to make a joke but i think <laughs> no, I, I think it's a, it's an important. I mean, you planned this study very carefully in advance with a very kind of a very careful and thoughtful process. Because unfortunately, quite often, what I think we see in the real life is studies came out with um, non nutritionists, non naturopath, non physicians planning something, often not yeah. realizing the complexity. So, I just want to put a plug there that this was planned with a very clear clinical mindset to begin with. Yes. Yes, that's right. Unique in our study was that every piece, you know, brick by brick was about optimizing DNA methylation slash epigenetic expression. Like we were very much thinking about that. We didn't pull a standard quote, healthy eating pattern off the shelf and prescribe it. We really thought about carefully optimizing uh, DNA methylation. And so it was, um, it's an eight week intervention. Nutritionists uh, met with our participants at least weekly more if they needed it um, for the first month. And then they could taper off if they, they no longer needed support. It's a relatively involved diet. We wanted people to get it right. Plus we were tracking, you know, we had an exercise prescription. We had a meditation prescription. We wanted people to sleep well, so we worked on sleep hygiene and sleep tips. And there were a couple of supplements, um, just a greens powder and a probiotic. Uh, no isolated vitamins or minerals, just a, a whole foods organic greens powder and a, and a probiotic. Uh, and so for all of the various, um, you know, the multimodal approach, we wanted our nutrition team to be present and, and guiding the participants so that they would, you know, get it. Uh, as close to right as possible. And it was an eight-week intervention, which was us, which to us was the max time we could expect a reasonable adherence. And we looked at DNA methylation at baseline, and we looked at it at the end, and we looked at other handful of biomarkers. Uh, and, you know, our first finding that we, that we published on was you know, the extraordinary reversal of biological age as compared to the control group by over three years. And you have the whole program, the actual studies described in pretty much good detail in the book. And of course, then there's a whole program that's included in the book. Um, and well, I guess with that, um, this, the, how do you translate the, this type of results from the study directly into your book to all comers, not to just people who were in the study, but for everybody? Yeah. Let me just, let me just say before I jump into that, that y you know, you guys know in this field, you know, and you being a gerontologist, know the spend on healthcare in this country. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, know, a, it's, it's insane. Literally, yes. It's just... Yes. And I just want to say that, you know, the, one reviewer in particular at Aging commented on this being broadly adoptable, um, you know, as a possible route towards turning the healthcare or the disease care, <laughs> the disease trajectory around in this country, which really there was some kind of an urgency to get this content out. And we do need to continue to study it. This is a pilot study, so we obviously need to continue. But there was an urgency. And I just want to say that 
if you know David Sinclair and his co- and, and a couple of his colleagues published uh, recently, and I think it was in Nature Aging, if I'm not mistaken, just you know crunching the numbers on improving lifespan, and by one year, improved lifespan, they calculated a 38 trillion dollar savings. <laughs> it's it's astonishing that. You know, if we can if we can move this at all, so so our three years, if we could actually manifest this in the greater population, the potential for quality of life improvement and cost saving, just the whole thing, is mind boggling. Yeah, I totally agree, Kara, and and I th- I think that um, obviously your program is designed very specifically, but even just small moving people towards yes. something like this would be vastly beneficial in terms of cost. So I think that's yes. another way of looking at it too. Is can we just get people moving in the direction of something yes. more like this? Um, yes. Because your point about you know eight week being about the limit, people are entirely adherent, and that's that's true. And because we've we live life, right? Like life is, is complicated and always being very consistent about something, um, particularly when you have things like holidays or you're traveling sure. can be very yes. difficult, but you don't have to be perfect to receive the benefits, correct? I don't believe so. And well, and I can speak from our study population. They were not perfectly adherent. I think that they did a really good job and I do think the nutrition support, the nutritionist support, uh, aided in that. Absolutely. Um, uh, but they weren't perfect. Yeah. We, I mean, I know for sure. in some of their, and some of their reports that they, that they were not perfectly adherent to it, but they did a really good quality job and we still saw significant changes. Uh, yeah. And, and, and even backing away from that, any step we make towards towards beneficial changes is, uh, is it, it, you know, will influence our gene expression, especially if we can sort of develop habits that we keep. And just going back to, um, to Misha's earlier question, so yes, our study was limited to men in middle-aged and, and, and is this broadly, you know, is, can we extend this program beyond that population? And I would say that our clinical experience is an emphatic yes. So we've used this across the board from kids to, um, you know, preconception, nutrition, even pregnancy. And uh, there, I, I talk about that in the book. So, so eating for gene expression through the, through the life stages and how we might think about this and the tweaks that we might ba- make. So certainly anecdotally and through, you know, years of a, a applying this in clinic practice and my own experience and the experience of my daughter, um, and me just paying attention to my biological age, and I and I follow the structure of the program. Yes, I would say that that's, that we absolutely can, and we need to, and we do have IRB approval, and I could talk about that later. So we are, uh, you know, recruiting for a patient or a participant-funded study that will happen through an app that we've developed. So we'll continue to crunch these data use in, a, in a broader population um, and, and look and see what we find. So it's all very exciting. Uh, I do want to mm-hmm. point out one example that was just so shocking for me and, and I think uh, just a ref- little reflection here. So I think we learn in the clinical settings when we have a case that stands out so much that just feels so. So the, your case of Sharon, and I'm sure I can use the name, right, since the, the yep. name is in the yep. book, uh, with a, who came with a homocysteine of 90, and I don't know how many 
hundreds, if not thousands of tests I've ordered, I probably have seen the highest 60. So, I mean, I can appreciate the severity of this person's methylation defect that, that she had and, and sort of the amount of, but what was shocking, you didn't give her much of, you know, high dose of folate or anything to just kind of treat her and get her into a, a borderline, basically normal range with just the modification of lifestyle. I just find it fascinating. And I think that's how we kind of learn. I remember I had a first case. We, we have, we're running this mindfulness-based stress reduction program routinely, and I had just randomly checked one patient's cholesterol before and after, and LDL went down from 160 to 110. And I was like, hmm. wait a second, what just happened here? We're not taught to believe things like this. But when they right. happen, they really push us hard into saying, wait a second, the power here is so profound that we got to speak about it. And I'm glad you put the case like this, and there are many others in the book, to, to illustrate the power. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yes, it is. I, You know, the fact that a diet and lifestyle program can influence biological age so favorably in a, you know, in a pretty short period of time has to underscore how important diet and lifestyle are. You know, I, I, um, and going back to meditation, Misha, I, I, I mentioned in the book and in the paper you know, I was blown away at the fact that in the biological age clock that we used, a full 25% is devoted to glucocorticoid response elements. And so these are, these are, are um, upregulated at the behest of stress, at the behest of cortisol, basically. So these are, so, so the, the take home of this is that to me, aging is potently driven by stress. And I think that the clinical evidence bears that out. Aging, uh, stress is gasoline on the fire of aging. It's in such an exquisitely potent way, like a full 25% of this biological age clock is devoted to stress, the stress influence. There's no other variable influencing the clock as much as the stress influence. And we can look at stress through the lifespan and see its influence on um, the chronic diseases of aging. I mean, it's just very, very clear. And likewise, and very and heartening for me, is that we can see meditation and Tai Chi and yoga and, you know, good healthy practices being longevity promoting. Practiced meditators are biologically younger, period. But the cool thing about this is that even one meditation experience can favorably change genetic expression, which is very heartening. We don't all have to march up to the mountaintop and into the monastery to yield these benefits. You know, to your, to your point um, earlier, we can just begin to adopt some healthy practices in the way of stress management and yield benefit. And of course, if we develop a habit, will yield even more benefit. So I think it's a, also a perfect segue into sort of what I do. I mean, I'm a geriatrician by training. I think half percent, half of my population, you know, really older, over 75, with many different conditions on tons of medications. And they probably, uh, you know, I, I love how you position the book for everybody, but I also want you to kind of speak a little bit about it as to 
Yes, there's a lot of complex patients, but I think this approach can fit absolutely everybody. And maybe yes. you can just kind of outline the 3YY program in the way that everybody, even when they think, oh my God, that's not going to work for me, can consider using yes. it. Yes. Well, first of all, let me say, folks, get the book in the very end. Maybe, Misha, you haven't found this yet. This is in the appendix. There's this massive nutrient appendix. We've corralled together, you know, the nutrient, the key um, compounds and the foods that they're in that have research on them as influencing DNA methylation influencing epigenetic expression. We call them epinutrients. So there's this 30-page appendix that I would say any human on, on, on the planet could, under, could, could highlight 12 foods that they're probably already eating. <laughs> so we could, keep, we could hold the branch down pretty low and say, all right, folks, just look at the appendix. Are you, you, know, are you eating blueberries? Are you using a little bit of rosemary in your cooking or thyme? Um, you know, do you like colorful you know, you know, peppers, red peppers, green peppers, et cetera? I mean, there are just so many beautiful foods that are available to us that influence genetic expression in a, in a in beneficial way. And so we can simply start there. Um, it's not just food as medicine. It's food is medicine, literally. Yeah, that's right. Amen. <laughs> I, knew, I, knew you, I knew you would say that. <laughs> I think what's cool about our approach is, you, you know, the diet is low glycemic. It's a little bit keto leaning. It's higher in fat. It's certainly probably, you know, the, the, the macronutrient patterns and the structures are similar to what a lot of us know is a healthy eating pattern. The, the sweet spot of this that's different is that we lean on these epinutrients. And so I would just say that could be an easy entry point into uh, adopting some of these principles. Epi, so we want to, when we, as we age, we don't methylate as effectively. Then we see homocysteine go up to your point. So we want to be bathing ourselves in methyl donors. We want to help methylation forward. You can do this with greens. You can do it with eggs. You can do it with beets. Uh, hopefully folks are open to eating a little bit of liver. They don't have to eat a lot because it is so nutritionally So dense. you're actually saying that part of Russian diet is healthy? I think, <laughs> I think for some of my friends who are Russians listening to this, I think they've been vindicated that, that it's not all about vodka and potatoes, but Russian diet is very high in beets. And I think the borscht, the famous borscht, which yes. I probably eat two or three times a week. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Yes. It's one of the saving elements of the, of that diet. <laughs> yeah, well, it's apparently not enough to keep Russian population healthy, but that's a story for another podcast. <laughs> you guys do a lot right, though, over there. I mean, I have to appreciate some of the, you know, you're ahead of the curve as far as, um, you know, a lot of science and integrative medicine. But yeah, borscht is, is, is perfect. Uh, so we want to be adopting some of these nutrients that help methylation help move it forward. And then these colorful polyphenols, so colorful fruits and veg um, that we think helps direct where methylation is happening. Um, they sort of maybe, and we can see, so the cool thing about our study is that we didn't just sort of make more methylation, which one would do if you gave people, you know, B12 and folate and maybe some betaine. We we rearranged where methylation was happening on the um, 
epigenome in a more favorable pattern. So we actually rearranged things around, um, which to me is just super cool. So there are some basic patterns that people can do. There are some basic eating uh, foods that they can ingest that will that will help them with that. We prescribed a very moderate, you know, e gentle time restricted structure. So eating for twelve hours, you know, and then nothing after seven p.m. and nothing before seven a.m. or whatever, you know, twelve twelve window works. Um, what else? We you know, again, we sleep is very important for good, for longevity, for healthy epigenetic expression. And so leaning on that and then, you know, doing some kind of uh, stress reduction, taking stress seriously, not just paying lip service to stress. I feel like many years, you know, I'm, I'm type A, I'm a physician, I have a practice and a business and, you know, I'm doing all of these things. I've got a toddler at home and, you know, I can pay lip service to how busy I am and to stress and blah, 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 blah. But you know, we, it, it, I have to do something about it. I think this work for me has been an important eye-opener in it, there's more than just talking about something. It's actually taking action. And one of my favorite apps is from the University of Wisconsin. It's called Healthy Minds. It's totally free. And it's got all sorts of different meditations and practices and so forth on it. All of it's free. And they have micro meditations, which are one minute long. So for anyone who doesn't have time because they're too busy and they're too stressed out, we can all do a minute. <laughs> we can all do this Absolutely. minute. We can do that. Yeah. Something else I like to do is, um, you know, people think they have to find time to meditate. And in to some way that that's true, right? If you want to meditate for 10 minutes, you have to find your 10 minutes. Um, but a lot of times it's about finding when you're going to do it in the time you already have, right? Like if you're in yes. an elevator, that's a great opportunity to just take a few deep breaths and that's meditation. It doesn't have to be this formal, I'm sitting in a meditation stance. You know, you don't need all of yes. those things. It's really just yes. about being present, focusing on your breath. Absolutely. Amen to that. That's exactly right. So important, so powerful. And if we all did that, the world would be transformed in a minute. <laughs> I mean, it really would. Absolutely. Yeah, totally true. And hopefully we will move people in that direction. Exercise is similar in its importance to every other variable that I've talked about. And again, you don't need to go from couch to CrossFit. You know, you, in fact, there is evidence that excessive exercise is potently pro-aging. And I used to be a competitive athlete and I would get sick after, you know, all my seasons. We all did, you know, after we, our competitive season. And, and so it's, it is, it, it is draining on the body, but exercise in a balanced way is essential. And so we prescribe to our participants just 30 minutes, five days a week, doing whatever they wanted to. And we wanted them to hit a perceived max, a, a perceived exertion of 60 to 80% of their maximum. So 60% might be a little bit of sweating, you know, maybe slightly heavier breathing, but still able to communicate, still able to talk. Uh, and they can just do whatever they want. They can walk, you can garden, you can, you know, walk on your treadmill. I mean, whatever the manifestation is. And I talk a lot in the book about, you know, doing how to make it happen, building community around it, you know, what's fun for you, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to say that exercise... Um, like the diet, like meditation, 
a single event can change gene expression favorably. So one ex, you know, one single exercise event, uh, and you know, conversely, I'll throw out there too that one, you know, higher gl- high glucose meal. This was an animal study had lasting had days long negative ramifications. So, on in a in, in a mouse model, which is which is interesting. So it, it sort of goes both ways. But uh, so exercise is beneficial, and then the more that we exercise, uh, you know, the more that we yield benefits, and the more. Uh, favorable genetic changes we see. And I want to say that one of the coolest things, so going back to one of my original interests in this was looking at tumor suppressor genes and the fact that cancer will hypermethylate and shut down these important genes. Aging does the same thing. It hypermethylates and inhibits. As we age, our risk for cancer grows exponentially. And uh, part of that is that we turn off our ability to surveil and, and get rid of uh, cancer cells through this tu- turning off tumor suppressor genes. Exercise turns them back on, just like the polyphenols do that I mentioned in the study or I talk about in the book. I mean, ex- and, and here's the really cool thing about it. The older we are, the more genetic expression bang for our buck we get if we exercise. So there's no, I'm too old to do this. There's just no, that, that's not an option. <laughs> We're going to do better. We're going to get better. We're going to get more bang for our exercise buck the older we are if we move our bodies. Right. I love that. It's, it, it's never too late to start. Just start doing something. Exactly. That's right. And you're going to get more bang for your buck. So not only is it not never too late to start, but you're going to get more, you know, than the young whippersnapper is. At the cross gym. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. So one of the things that you mentioned that um, really resonated with me, you mentioned about how they they met routinely with nutritionists. And in the literature, one of the, the largest correlates for success in any diet or lifestyle intervention is the number of touch points with a support system. And so I wonder how much of that played into this and then yes. what role you think health coaching might play uh, for people trying to implement something like this? Yes, that's such a good question. One of the guys that helped with our um, biostatistics thinks that our entire success was due to the nutrition the nutritionists. <laughs> and you know what? Fabulous. I'm sure they'd love to Great. hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue. It, it's fun to talk to other people and their, you know, their opinion on what did the heavy lifting in this multimodal study. You know, we don't, it's a multimodal study, so we can't say for sure, but certainly. Um, as, it, a, I, as a physician on call, I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy to hear this. I'm not afraid of saying yes, because <laughs> it, it often feels like, you know, when we're trying to do this work in 10-minute visits, it, it just feels ridiculous. And, and, yes. and I'm the one who sees this day-to-day, and I realize how impossible it is for a current medical model to do this unless yes. the coaching and nutritional component is fully embraced, fully covered, and, and fully yes. incorporated. Yes. Yes. Sorry, sorry. Me, I had to. I had to interrupt there. I'm you're, sorry. You're to, you're absolutely right. You know, for me, this the opportunity. I mean, to to run a clinical trial like this is ex, it, it's it, it's exorbitant. I mean, it's an expensive journey, and I was 
I was absolutely driven to do the best that we possibly could with this opportunity that was, you know, gifted to us to study it in, in such a rigorous way, um, using a, 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 a clinical research center. Um, so I knew that we needed guidance. I mean, gosh, the research, you know, you know, in integrative medicine, when you look at nutrition research, it's, it's a lot of it is garbage. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, re- it's so true. <laughs> and, it's, and it's heartbreaking when we're in the field that we can't rely on, you know, this dietary recall. It's not, it's well, and a not lot of it, It's done that way mostly for costs. We, we yeah. just don't fund these studies the way they need to be funded to really get the answers. And as a PhD trained researcher in nutrition, that really breaks my heart because there are people out there who know how to do better studies, but they're just doing what they can with the little we've been given. Although I didn't pay these nutritionists this was, they, they have authorship now, you know, the whole nutrition yeah. team does. So, I mean, they weren't funded. I mean, we can be creative. There are a lot of nutrition and training folks out there who would right. give their, you know, their eyes <laughs> to be, in, you know, they would just give hours. yes, to be able to participate in this. All of these nutritionists were excited and grateful. I mean, it was just a really fun time. I want to say, you know, going back to clinical research, we, they did not get to coach in the way that we do in the practice of medicine. You know, they did not get to cheerlead and rah, rah, rah. They had a very stale script that they had to adhere to in an Mm. attempt to kind of control that, you know, that um, connection and that engagement, which I find kind of funny, but that's how you conduct, you know, clinical research studies. You don't, you try to control for, um, the influence of, 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 of a supportive relationship that we would do de rigueur in clinical practice. So they did have to follow a stale script, but even with that, the participants really valued from guidance. And, you know, they would brainstorm on, the study was conducted in Portland, Oregon, and where can, where can they get liver? And, you know, one person would find it and it would sort of go through the nutrition team and they would support others in accessing this and, you know, what recipes were working or, you know, tips for exercise or whatever. It, it was, it was a neat community. And, um, we, as we scale the program, we absolutely will lean on coaches absolutely 100%. The out, I mean, I think the data, are clear, especially looking at some of the exciting things coming out of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, you know, group support, um, non, non-physician, you know, physicians need, we, we needn't be sitting, doing all of the education, uh, leaning on nutritionists, leaning on health coaches, especially will uh, enable this to be, you know, broadly adoptable, uh, you know, hopefully at price points, you know, many of us can, can afford to, um, to do. Absolutely. I think that's a, a, a good place to leave off, though I'm sure we could talk much, much more, uh, is all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Kara. Thanks for having me. It was fun to talk to both of you. This is GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. Thanks, Thanks for listening. For listening.